me in Jeremiah 17. Um, we are going to read verses 1 through 13 in God's holy word. Jeremiah 17, hear God's word. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every person gathered here, Lord, and I pray that your word would not return void as you promise in your scriptures, Lord. We pray that you would touch our hearts and lives, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At 5 o'clock on the morning of December 13th, I awoke to my wife telling me in a loud whisper, there's a strange man in our house. I groggily got dressed. My heart was beating quite hard. And I tried to figure out how I would deal with this situation. By the time I got out of the bedroom, though, he left our children's bathroom where he had been peeking his head out and was walking outside uh, and through our porch. And he was mumbling something incoherent as he was leaving. We locked the doors, 
and we asked ourselves, what should we do now? And Susan eventually called the police, and they found a man walking on the road around our Westminster campus. The police called us and told us that if we pressed charges, that he would be charged with trespassing. I thought, trespassing, is that all? I see the no trespassing signs all the time. Walking across someone's land un- unauthorized or entering someone's house unauthorized seemed categorically different when you looked at it that way. You know, trespassing, whether it be across land or property, is wrong and occurs the moment you cross the threshold that separates public and private areas. But trespass can also be defined as committing an offense against a certain person or set of rules. To sin is to trespass God's laws. Jeremiah, otherwise known as the weeping prophet, was tasked with the unenviable job of informing Judah of their trespasses. They had moved across the threshold of freedom in God into gross offense to God. The passage reads, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron with a point of diamond. It is graved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green, green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for your sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. This passage, much like the, much of the book of Jeremiah, describes the judgment that God has declared on Judah. Their trespasses are written on their stone-cold, sin-hardened hearts. They're written with a pen made of brittle and hard iron with a diamond point, the only stone capable of even scratching the hardness of their hearts. Josiah, one of the few righteous kings of Judah, had destroyed their high places and their Asherah poles, but their children still remembered seeing the sins they had committed, and of course, God remembered. So what did their children see? What couldn't they forget? What did God see? Asher was the major consort of El. She was the goddess of fertility. Temple prostitution and licentious behavior, all in the name of their God. Even going so far as to practice child sacrifice. Their children saw what they were doing, and like all children, determined That is how the world operates. That's how God operates. Their children began to think that this syncretism was how you worship God. That this mix of the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Asherah was somehow compatible. And this sin had occurred all throughout their territory. Their children saw, and now they will never forget what their parents had done. It was indelible on their souls as their sins written on their parents' stone-cold hearts. I don't know if you can see a parallel to what happened then to what is happening now. We don't have Asherah poles, but everything else is the same. Our sexual revolution, a byproduct of our personal autonomy, 
results in the glorification of the Women's Reproductive Freedom Act. A New York euphemism for abortion on demand all the way to birth. Child sacrifice to Molech in the Old Testament has transformed and become a woman's right to choose in the postmodern world to the same effect as it remains a sacrifice to the pagan gods of fertility. This newest freedom gets vigorous applause in the New York legislature and reason to light the World Trade Center in Victoria's pink. It also paints it as a target with justification for those who hate what America stands for. If you want a rude auditory awakening, search YouTube for the sound of abortion and listen to the BBs representing the children's lives lost to abortion. So what was Judah's consequence? For we do know that all sin has a consequence, even if unseen and hidden for years. God through Jeremiah tells them that their land will be wrenched from their clutching hands and they will serve their enemies in a land they do not know. I have come to identify strongly with the home I live in. The land and my home could not have been obtained without God's blessing, both through financial circumstances and his moving of many hearts to contribute to the work, to complete the work. I still remember my father trying to get me to leave Westminster and work at a public school for better pay and a better retirement. He talked about his house and his shop and asked me why I shouldn't have the same things that he was able to enjoy. But I trusted God to provide for me, and he has in remarkable ways. My house, my land, is my inheritance from God. We know that Israel's land was an inheritance from God as well. They did not work for it. When they entered the promised land, they were reminded that they did not build the houses they were living in, nor did they plant the vineyards that they possessed. Now, because of their sinful behavior, this land would be stripped from them. They, in fact, had a stronger connection to the land than to the God who gave them the land. And because they had forsaken God, they would be forsaken from their land. Their conquerors, the Babylonians, had learned through practice that if you conquer a people and lead them in their lands, that they will continue to fight you. But if you uproot them from their homes and move them to a foreign land, they become much more docile. In God's providence, that is what they did to Judah. Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places in the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious for in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Verses 5 through 8 provide a lesson in contrast between two kinds of people. In fact, in this world, there are only these two kinds of people, those who trust in man and those who trust in God. 
those who know me well have probably already heard the acronym that I love to use for the word trust. Trust, to rely upon someone true. T-R-U-S-T, to rely upon someone true. You can rely upon man or upon God. One is a curse, the other a blessing. And God explains why. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, it says. It makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Those who trust in man's strength, his insight, his wisdom, will discover that it is a curse to them. Why? Because man's abilities will always fall short. But more significantly, if they're trusting in man, by implication, they have done something else first. They have turned away from the Lord. Show me someone who has an axe to grind against God, and I will show you someone who in in the past has turned away from the Lord. And they are cursed. Verse 6 states, He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. You know, I googled shrub in the desert and searched for images, and guess what I saw? Dried up, sickly, ugly-looking plants with very little life in them. I don't know if you've been to the salt flats of Utah, it does not look anything like anything would live in those dry, arid, waterless lands. And God is saying that is the end product of man trusting in man. There is no life there. There is no hope. There is no love and no reason for love. Sadly, until those caught up in its self-deception are willing to admit their emperor has no clothes, they will continue to trust in man. Unfortunately, Many who dwell in this desert make it their life's goal to make sure everyone else dwells in the desert with them. Verse 5 says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. This passage is very similar to Psalm 1. Listen to what it says. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The man who trusts in the Lord has made an active decision. He does not listen to the ungodly. He does not judge others or make it difficult for them to repent. And he is not a scorner. What does the man do? He makes the Lord his trust. He delights in God's law. But what does that mean? It does not mean that he self-righteously and rigidly holds to rules. Its implication is that he delights in the revelation of God to his own person. He does not necessarily delight in being a rule follower, but delights to be a follower of a God who loves him, who provides for him, and who desires the very best for him by giving him boundaries that keep him safe. In so doing, he nourishes his soul and he prospers. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. 
and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. A bush in the desert or a tree by the water, the contrast is stark. Scrawny, scraggly, lifeless, and fruitless compared to this tree planted by the water. You will notice a bit of the providential hand of God in the description. The shrub is simply growing in the desert, but the tree is planted. Someone, aware of its needs, put it where it would flourish. And so it is with those who trust in God. He plants us where we can grow best, and he causes us to flourish. He is the divine vine, giving the branches life and fruit. Notice this tree has no anxiety in the year of drought. If you make the Lord your trust, there will be years of drought. But you are firmly planted. Your roots run deep. And even in the hard times, you will still produce fruit. I am reminded of my wife's Susan story from college. Even though she was struggling with some emotional issues and even thoughts of suicide, she was still able to convince a friend not to kill her unborn child. They still call her friend's baby the Pop-Tart baby because eating a Pop-Tart meant that she could not go forward with the abortion. Droughts may come. But if you trust in the Lord, you need not be anxious because God has you safely in his hand. In the words of Johnny Erickson Tata, who was a quadriplegic for decades, is a quadriplegic, and a two-time cancer survivor. She is currently experiencing cancer. She writes, God has not chosen to heal me. He has chosen to hold me. The more intense the pain, the stronger the embrace. Romans 8, starting at verse 31, comes to mind. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we need any more encouragement than these passages to see the folly in trusting man and the great eternal and solid foundation for our lives when we trust in Christ? Reading in this passage, it goes on saying, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now contrast verse 9 by what we are told by the world about our hearts today. Doesn't the whole world say, follow your heart? 
You know, I looked up Follow Your Heart online for some of the uh, scriptural references. Ironically, most of them came up anonymous. Believe yourself and follow your heart. Anonymous. The one notable exception was to this search was a quote from Steve Jobs. He wrote, Remember that you're going to die is the best way to know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. You know, Steve Jobs may have been a great visionary for Apple and Pixar, but as a life role model, the fact that he tells me to follow my heart should make me take pause. He refused to acknowledge his first daughter's paternity for years. His best friend, Johnny Ives, said that Job's for catharsis would look for ways to hurt people. Steve Job's, Job's quotes bear similarity to probably the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you might have been thinking that as I was reading it. I think there are some differences, though. Job, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 15 and 16 states, and as he came forth from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? But Ecclesiastes' main point is that without God, it's all meaningless whether or not you do great works like Solomon or Steve Jobs. There is more to lose in life than simply losing your life, however. Your soul is a greater loss. Jobs is accurate in identifying that we are naked. The only thing that will adequately cover our sinful nakedness before God is Christ's righteousness and believing on Christ. If all of these anonymous people are telling us to follow our heart, if the world is telling us to follow our heart, that in itself should be a warning sign. But more significantly, if God in his word warns us that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, is it not highly likely that following our heart may very well be the last thing we want to do? Did the deeds of the Israelites who follow the lustful leadings of their hearts lead them in a the right pathway? Of course, the answer is no. So what is the solution? What is the answer for our desperately wicked hearts? The Israelites' hearts that were so sin-hardened that they needed a diamond tool just to be able to inscribe their sins upon it. A spiritual doctor would tell the Israelites and would tell us today that you have spiritual cardiomyopathy. You literally, in medical terms, are dying of a hard heart. And there is no cure for that. But there is a radical solution, a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36, 26 states, A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. If God gives us a new heart, then we are Christ's, and then we can truly follow our heart as it is guided by the Holy Spirit. We will delight ourselves in the Lord, and he will give us our heart's desire, the scripture says. But never even think or say for a moment that the Lord is leading me to do sin. James 1, 13 through 17 states, Let no one, who, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 
But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or, sh- or shadow of turning. God will give you your heart's desire because he will change the desire to want what he knows will be the best gift for you. Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give to man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. There is a sowing and a reaping principle here. You know, one of the more unique things that my father has done was send my brother an envelope with a stock of grain with a bunch of seeds in it. My brother called him up, and he was kind of more profane, but he asked him what he had sent him. And my father said, those are wild oats. You've been sowing them for years, and I thought you should know what they look like. You sow wild oats, you reap wild oats. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Verse 12 says, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. God's glorious throne has been established from the very beginning. And for those who trust in God, it is a sanctuary. There are but two kinds of people. Those who trust in the strength of men and those who trust in God. There is but one place to look for the fountain of living water. Here in Jeremiah, it is a mystery. But Jesus the Messiah has revealed it. He is the fountain of living water. That if you drink thereof, it will become in you a wellspring up to everlasting life. He will become your source of life and your only hope. Trusting in man leads to death, but trusting in Christ leads to eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so easy to trust in man. We can see man... We can follow our natural inclinations, which lead to death, Lord. Or we can trust in you, the invisible and holy God. Lord, we pray that you would help turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, that you would give us a new heart, and that we would learn to trust that heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.